0: again. I'm happy that you're joining me once more in my little nook of cyberspace and hope that you will be edified by this continued conversation. In the last video, I began to talk about the existence of God, which, which as I mentioned, I'll work through over a, a dozen or so videos. But, but God, as you might be aware, is a, is a difficult topic. And so I, I've suggested that we might approach the question of God in, in several layers. That is to say, there, there are different registers on which we we struggle with and work through the God question, at, at least in principle. Uh, they're all smashed together in our actual experience, of course, but but prying them apart and looking at them strand by strand helps us to get at the whole picture. I talked about three layers in the last video. There's the the basic phenomenological layer, the the the, the question of how things seem or appear to us. Secondly, there's the the existential and, and moral questions that, that often prevent belief, questions concerning how God relates to things like, like justice and human meaning or purpose. And finally, there's the, the evidential or philosophical layer where we ask the positive reasons that we have for, for believing in God. I'll get at the last two layers, Lord willing, several videos from now, well, but for the moment, we're discussing that first layer, the layer of how things seem and appear to us. I said last time that I'll I'll probably do three videos on this. The the first of these was the last video wherein I began our discussion of divine absence or or divine not-obviousness, perhaps. That is, why is it that God, who should presumably seem obvious, one might think, and who presumably, so it is supposed, wants everyone to believe in him, why should he be so much less obvious than we might hope for him to be? Or or recalling the way that Charles Taylor sets this up, why is it that it was virtually impossible not to believe in God in 1500 AD say, and now even the most fervent believers can faintly understand why someone might not believe in him? Uh, What has changed in in the background of our beliefs or our plausibility structures, our our filter for determining what is unlikely and and unlikely. If you haven't seen that first video, I'd watch it before this one, just to throw that out there. In this particular video, I'm going to reply to several interpretations of this phenomenon of divine absence and then offer my own interpretation. And then in the next video, which will probably complete our discussion of this particular layer of the God question, again, the phenomenological layer, uh, I'll query concerning what a faithful Christian response to this experience and, and challenge might be. I think that the Bible and reality might have a few surprises for us there. But for now, let's just interpret the phenomenon. God used to feel obvious to most people, and now he doesn't. So so what's up with that? What are the options? The first, the first option, and easily felt to be the most parsimonious hypothesis, is that the non-obviousness of God is accounted for by the simple fact that God doesn't exist. In the last decade or two, the philosopher John Schellenberg has, in particular, argued that divine absence is prima facie evidence for divine non-existence. As well, toward the end of his large critique of Christianity, why I became an atheist, John Loftus testifies that after he lost his Christianity and found himself in an agnostic position, it was the religiously ambiguous nature of the universe that to him constituted decisive evidence in favor of atheism. That is, it would seem implausible that God could both exist and be ambiguous. I'll spend more time on the positive arguments for God's existence in future videos, primarily arguing for why God is necessary and necessarily personal, while also accounting for how the atheist option can still feel natural and plausible for both licit and illicit reasons to modern persons sometimes. Nevertheless, I think we can offer a few preliminary responses along the following lines. Um, Sometimes, Things seem plausible or possible, which are actually not so plausible or obvious. Uh, The listener's instinctive reaction might be, uh, you know, "Oh boy, this is the obvious truth," and now we're going to spend this whole series going over and giving excuses for how we should avoid reality. Um, Misguided as that reaction is, I I can't force anyone not to have it, but I can highlight some prima facie reasons for for at least being careful here. For instance. Can can anyone seriously deny that there are folks who have thought about this stuff, who are manifestly intellectually honest and brave, and yet who are firmly persuaded that God exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him? Is the philosopher Stephen R.L. Clark, for instance, just deluded? Uh, Frankly, a denial that such persons exist is either ignorant, dishonest, or can be dismissed as merely polemical and maybe even a tad insecure. Indeed, I, I would argue that the most intellectually honest atheists can actually struggle with belief just as much as Christians might struggle with unbelief. That is, they can they can lie awake at night and wonder if there is personality after all behind the scenes. What is more, they can they can understand faintly why someone might take this option. Again, I, I speak for the most informed and best atheists when I say that, not necessarily their more juvenile counterparts, perhaps. Atheists, as it turns out, also live in a world in which God is still plausible, God is still living option, and in, and in which they can imagine what it is like to think of reality differently. So it's not just that atheism is plausible, several options are plausible. Um, another consideration, consideration as, I, as I began to say earlier, is that, is that some things can seem plausible or obvious, which on reflection are, are actually just not so plausible or obvious. Atheists necessarily agree with this as it pertains pertains to our medieval ancestors for almost all of whom atheism was felt to be impossible. Commonly agreed upon historical examples of this include the notion that the sun revolves around the earth, Aristotelians who argued that no species could go extinct because in their view, no form could have existed without an instance um, or, or pundits and people who argued that Donald Trump could not possibly become the Republican nominee for the President of the United States. <laughs> Current examples include the common but not clearly, inat- but the, I'm sorry, excuse me, common but clearly inadequate reduction of gender to being just a social construct, or the belief that religion always masks deeper motivations whenever someone commits an evil in the name of religion, or the implausible fact that Donald Trump right now just is the president of the United States. Uh, So let's, let's table that option for the moment, suggesting that all may not be so simple and promise to give an alternative case upon a better reading of the situation in this video and then positive arguments for God in later videos. But but a second way to interpret uh, this phenomenon of the the felt plausibility of atheism is one which reduces all of these atheist temptations and conversations to a problem of the mind or a problem of the will. Basically, uh, people are tempted by or convert to atheism because they have bad ideas, or they're tempted by or convert to atheism because they have a distorted will. With respect to that first option there, the the bad ideas retort, the fix is normally imagined to take the form of correcting bad ideas by persuading the temptee of truths and perspectives, which will presumably take away the plausibility of atheism. So bad ideas get smacked around by good ideas, if you will. Uh, With respect to the latter, the kind of distorted will option, the argument is often uh, that such persons have a sinful will which opposes God and therefore have a great interest to they, you know, what one might say in God not existing. These people are unable to be honest with reality, presumably because they, they want a lie to be true or they, they wanna sleep with their girlfriend or get a divorce or something. <laughs> and to be sure, <laughs> I don't wanna deny that there are some fair targets uh, that are hit by each of these retorts. Um, But the same could be said the other way around. Uh, Are are there believers, for instance, who who simply believe because God is a crutch, because they're afraid of the alternative, or for reasons other than true confidence, conviction, and clarity? Of of course there are. But this is not true of all, or probably even the average believer. Similarly, I, I don't think the above adequately accounts for the atheist temptation on the whole. Uh, Take the bad ideas retort, for instance, that there are many persons, again, who are quite persuaded of the case for theism or Christianity for precisely the same reasons that that you are, but who still have difficulty shaking the felt plausibility that atheism is true. This is fairly common. It's really just a fact, and we need to account for and minister to it. And then in, in respect of the, you know, sort of you just want to sleep with your girlfriend interpretation, while it's true that human beings are in ethical tension with God, this does not necessarily manifest itself in denying his existence or even in denying Christian theology. You know, James says, you know, the demons believe and shudder. And indeed, presumably, there are Westminster confessing reprobates. So while our tension with God might and does cause us to distort reality sometimes, this does not account for the whole phenomenon, nor the fact that this is experienced by believers who are pursuing God and in a right relationship with him as a very real temptation despite constant thought and prayer. So what I wanna say here is that this is just, the temptation of atheism really is a simple reality for a lot of people and it needs to be explained a little bit better than that retort or those couple of retorts would suggest. As well, going a little further there, before we get on to maybe a, a better or more whole interpretation, I think it's important to reflect a bit more about the, the the that collection of retorts we just looked at because they're fairly common. And I think behind them is maybe often a theology which kind of implies that one can't believe Christian truth apart from conversion. Sometimes this is felt to imply that substantive struggle with Christian truth must therefore reflect the the lack of conversion or at least its remaining vestiges and some pesky remaining unbelief. This is but i think this is a deeply problematic claim because it inevitably reduces the persuasiveness and objective truth of christian claims to the subset of people who possess the right kind of reality glasses pushing the power of christian claims in their 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 kind of common public reality out of their public vulnerability or or public strength if the claims are true <laughs> And then the persuasion then just goes into the subject, who has the right reality glasses. Even if Christ was raised from the dead in real history, then our persuasion that he was raised from the dead is entirely dependent upon the, that right subjective starting point. And this then I think becomes subject to William Bartley's classic retreat to commitment critique. In my judgment, this that strategy is always absolutely toxic to Christian confidence. I, I have similar concerns, in fact, about apologetics attempt concerning a, you know, when we start talking about an objective basis for morality or some other philosophical parallel, as though moral experience is subjective until we find an objective ground. It seems rather the opposite, uh, Opposite that is, that, that moral space just is an objective reality of our shared world in both its whole and in its particulars. And then in that, it, it kind of echoes a divine original. And and this can be shown, but it is precisely the public nature of our claims that tests their strength and demonstrates their resilience. And maybe we'll talk about that moral moral dimension and moral arguments in subsequent videos. But for all the ways in which our, our subjective states might render a thing plausible or implausible, we are still fundamentally in a shared reality, a shared world, a shared space, in which we're all trying to make our way and with at least some shared grounds upon which we can try to persuade one another. And it is into this very real shared space that Christ really came and stood in front of people's actual faces. And it is into this shared common space that jesus actually rose from the dead and it is in this shared common space that is to say in reality in real hardcore brass tacks concrete steel blood sweat tears and pain reality that we can still confidently proclaim that jesus is the risen lord of the world and for precisely this reason it is also this very public shared space that these, uh, that these shared struggles, which we're attempting to elucidate, can be, can be ministered to by Christ. So let me, let me be extremely clear, though, that here I'm talking about public con- uh, persuasion concerning truth claims as such. I'm not speaking as though that kind of public persuasion automatically converts the human heart, which ultimately has to do with the evaluation of truth claims that goes beyond merely assenting to their truth as such. Again, think of the demons. The demons believe that God is one. Presumably, the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But their evaluation of these facts makes them shudder. Uh, Changing this deeper evaluation is ultimately a work of the spirit, uh, which is ordinarily attended by persuasion concerning the truths themselves, and that renders our attempts at persuasion evangelistic in some way. Uh, but intellection and proper persuasion, the, uh, excuse me, intellectual uh, evaluation, moving on to that evaluative register that Christ is evaluated as, as good for me is a work of the spirit and is in principle then separate from just being persuaded of the, the truth claims themselves. And I think that's an important distinction which should shape the way we approach these questions. All right, so, so two interpretations down, one to go. What I'd like to propose is an underappreciated explanation of the plausibility of atheism, especially in relation to the issue of divine absence or divine non-obviousness, if we could call it that, is the role that is played by the emergence of what I often call late modern techno-culture. Uh, And here I'm not thinking merely of the proliferation of modern technology in an aggregate or abstract way as though a collection of new inventions kicks God out of his job. Uh, Rather, what I'm interested in is the way that mankind has actually used technology, um, to use technology to organize life and society and the manner in which technology is employed to mediate between man and his world, and especially between man and man. Uh, in labor and otherwise. Modern labor is actually a, a huge part of this narrative, but perhaps we can begin to get into it simply by by asking the following question. So here's, here's the question that I, that I think will help set this up for us. What does what the modern order in whole or in part, day in and day out, suggest to us, tacitly or explicitly, concerning what it means to even say that a thing is real in the first place? If we were to try and infer from our ordinary experiences what reality is like and what it means to say that something is real, what would we come up with? I think that asking and answering that question will help us explain what's going on with the modern uh, struggle with the issue of divine absence. So let's re-ask that question just to make sure that we keep it in our mind. If we were to try and understand reality and what it means that something is real, that it exists, that it, that it stands out in the community of beings, in the mirror of modern technological culture and modern label, how would we answer it? How would we answer that? What, what would it mean to say that something is real? To answer this, I think we need to, to back up and tell the story of the development of modern atheism very briefly, and then we'll interpret it relative to this question. So so a little history first. It's interesting to note that there aren't great reasons to believe that we find atheists in European civilization for before the 1600s, which is is not to say that there weren't accusations of atheism all the time. That's actually always been the case. Uh, But we don't find people who understood themselves as atheists prior to this period. One reading of this is that, of course, people didn't talk about their atheism because they'd get the chop if they did so. (laughs) But if you reflect a bit more on this, that's not such a great response. Many people, after all, died for their beliefs during this period. And yet still, by the 1650s, we could count on, on one hand the amount of instances of self-professed atheists that we find in Europe, and probably just a few fingers. So by 1600, nothing. By 1650, we can get a couple of fingers of atheists. (laughs) To be sure, some some, uh, people consider figures like Baruch or Pierre Biel, uh, uh, atheists, but these are highly contested readings for a host of reasons that I I can't get into here. what, what is uncontroversial is that by about the middle of the 1700s, that there were very explicit and public atheists, but but only a few such as Diderot and de Halbach. Uh, and even then in the 1750s, when when these guys sort of come out of the atheist closet as it were, it was still considered an extreme position by someone such as Voltaire, who was you know himself no friend to Christianity. And so for the next hundred years or so between say 1750 and 1850, it remained a mostly isolated and elite phenomenon, a belief held by a minority of European men of letters. Moreover, the reasons for holding it had little to do with the problem of divine absence. The the provenance of atheist claims was actually usually, and this is kind of interesting, a, a response to Christian apologetics. One of the ironies uncovered by most historians of atheism is that it almost always developed out of the felt need of Christians to intellectually defend their faith. It was as though the moment the faith actually needed to be defended, it was shown to be vulnerable. And then the, the reasons offered were often seen as much less solid than one might have thought other, one might have otherwise simply assumed if we never started defending it in the first place. <laughs> in any case, you can, you can find a growing handful of atheists among the European intelligentsia from about 1750 to 1850, but at no point even in that sense century, uh, is it a particularly common phenomenon? It's, I mean, it's around, but even toward the middle of the 19th century has marshaled no more than a, than a handful of intellectual devotees, some of the uh, left Hegelians in Germany, like Karl Marx, for instance. Most historians of atheism, however, would argue that it is not until the middle of to the end of the 19th century that we begin to see an emerging critical mass of atheists, agnostics, or so-called free thinkers in European civilization. Remarkably, the years, say 1860 to 1890, roughly speaking, appear to be the crucial years for the development of atheism in England, Germany, France, and in America. However, one of the interesting details is that atheism tended to arise in urban environments among the working class albeit maybe the more educated amongst the working class, you know, the readers of books. (laughs) One explanation for the significance of those days is of course, and maybe you're thinking this in your head right now, is the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859. But uh, most historians of Darwin have demonstrated that the initial reception of Origin of Species among Christians was actually quite diverse and that many Christian intellectuals felt little threatened by its conclusions, even if they disagreed with them. But if if that were not enough, Susan Budd, one one historian of the period and her study of over a hundred deconversion narratives in Victorian England during that that crucial period notes that those who point to Darwin as having any influence on their deconversion could be counted on on one hand. And so it's kind of demonstrated that that's actually not the big catalyst for for the rise of atheism during the period. For myself then, it, it seems interesting to to me at least to note the the urban and class dimensions of this critical mass of atheists presumably it's not coincidental that this period was also the climax of the industrial revolution a, a generation after the impact of european enclosure laws had pushed most of the population to cities that is to say this period is the first time in history where the majority of persons in a major civilization moved moved through life almost entirely in urban space and removed from the native habitat and economy of their ancestors, And, and then generally then, consequently, had to perform some kind of wage labor in that urban space for their sustenance. But before I comment further on that, because that's really crucial, let's briefly tell the kind of the rest of the story and then come back and interpret what's going on here. So by the end of the 19th century, atheism is a felt option among intellectual elites and among the urban working classes. It becomes a major option for the middle class, basic, basically an option for pretty much any modern person once it spreads there around the 1960s. So let's think the dates, you know, sort of between 1860 and 1960, what, what sort of occurs between there for one thing the, the life of urban laborers is progressively transformed into of course the the modern middle class this is one of the big stories of modernity right the, this does not diminish though but increases the manner in which the common person's experience of the world is heavily mediated by the ever increasing and ubiquitous technologies of the period but should, we should not see this in the in the abstract specifically it's crucial to note Uh, that it is also the case that the labor of the middle class remains, as it does today, some form of of wage labor. That is, that is labor that is performed for the immediate purposes of another rather than one's own immediate purposes in exchange for wages. And indeed, the most thorough sociological analysis of modern unbelief, the, the studies of Zuckerman, uh, suggests that unbelief is often predicted by certain classes and lifestyle uh, rather than the other way around. <laughs> so what's going on here? Uh, I think it's this. Classically speaking what is what has reinforced the god instinct is not just arguments for the existence of God but the, but the nature of the world and of human experience within that world. In most of history, human beings have experienced the world around them in ways that felt like engaging an agent uh, as an imposing force around which they have to learn to navigate, the way siblings have to learn to navigate around one another. To successfully work one's way through life was, was to communicate with all of reality in a sort of way. Now, and I don't mean to romanticize this, life might have been lousy and unenviable on all sorts of registers, but it was personal like one was in a constant state of negotiation with everything. And this was not just true in terms of, you know, negotiation with the natural world, but most clearly in one's experience of one's fellows, of of human community, of family, of one's social network. Uh, And moreover, most of this was, was very given and imposed fairly uneradicable by just, you know, an act of willing. That is to say there was much less mobility or capacity to change one's circumstances, especially when social circumstances. And so the world, both natural and and, and social, experienced as a sort of collection of agencies. You know, when you think of it that way, the image of a kind of grounding agent behind everything is, is quite natural. So read in the mirror of the world is a sort of chorus of actors. A divine agent is just kind of a, a transcendental, more of the same. Uh, as well, th- this reading of things was not just a, a passive way of relating the world, but involved active participation in the negotiation. Despite the, the sometimes oppressive nature of historical subsistence that we, we don't want again, <laughs> The ordinary histor- historical experience of labor in the world, nevertheless, was, was ordinarily the experience of working for one's immediate purposes, to, to plant one's own crops or to build one's own house, to sew one's own clothes and perfect one's own crafts, is to experience meaning in the very act of doing. There's no kind of meaning doing separation or in modern speak, there's no alienation between man and his labor or between labor and life. And so reflected in the mirror of our own labor as well, which which takes, which which takes negotiated newness out of what is given to us, which takes and negotiates newness out of what is given, given to us, the, the notion of a creator God is read off the very pages of life and human experience. And for good or ill, then, the Industrial Revolution changes both of these things, at least, at least to a significant and crucial extent. First... Certainly by the end of the 19th century and increasingly afterwards and even in our own time, the world is not merely thought or treated like but actually experienced as sort of passive material to be shaped according to the human will. Some, some point to the to the role of you know, Baconianism and various other medieval intellectual trends to explain how we began to look at the world this way. And there's some truth there. A certain kind of posture toward the world does develop very gradually throughout the early modern to late modern period. But I think this can be overstated as well. I would argue that for most people, a more powerful force was simply living in a world that was already treated a certain way that rendered a certain view of the world plausible. That is to say, if if one is born into a world in which everything is treated like a nail, uh, if you will, one will think of one's own agency as a hammer quite naturally and quite apart from overt ideas. Especially toward the end of the 19th century, entire portions of our civilization lived in a world that did not need to be navigated around but merely conformed to one's own convenience. We technically know that the food at the grocery store, for instance, doesn't just show up, but we do relate to the food as though it's just there, separated from any sense of what it took to acquire it. The the meat that I procure isn't something that was formerly alive, except in some abstract space in my notions. but. I relate to it simply as pink stuff that is yummy when I put it into a pan. It might as well be made in a test tube for all the way I relate to it. Then similarly, we don't relate to place as to a, a land around which we negotiate, but rather as just raw material out of which we or I make whatever will efficiently serve human ends. I don't know what the land around here is like in itself, what its properties are, is distinct from the properties of other places, unless I decide to abstractly make a note of such things because I want to. But that's just the point. I don't have to do that. I don't have to navigate around it. What the what the increased ubiquity of technological artifice then, again, as it's actually used, does for us, is it, it provides... Progressively allows a a kind of suspension of the felt existence and insistence of the world is upon us. Uh, Even storms, major storms, which would have formerly been a crisis for our ancestors, you know, what are we going to eat if all, you know, the hail ruins all our crops or whatever? That's now felt to be kind of a delightful curiosity that I can enjoy from inside the house while I I look out the window. (laughs) Much of this is good, of course. So, you know, we don 't want to go back to that, but in aggregate it it does subtly change our perception of what reality is like and what it is. The, the world feels like and kind of manifests as a world that 's for me i don 't I don't think about it, but when i when I walk outside the house i 'm in right now that you 're you know this window right here, I find my feet on on smooth ground uh, 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 my path is lit from above by streetlights. I step inside, you know, when I go to the university, I step inside a bus that transports me miles away at high efficient speeds with safety. And I know all of this is artificial in a kind of abstract intellectual way, but I've also never known anything else. This is just what reality is like to me and to us. The world is passive before our collective agency. And this has changed our well as well our relation to food, as I've just noted, and to human community itself. Increasingly, with the invention of modern mobility and especially of the automobile, even our irreducible dependence on other persons is subsumed under the agency of the modern sovereign agent. If I, if I don't like these people, I can move. If I don't like my family, <laughs> I'm not so dependent on them that I, that I actually you know have to talk to them. and crucially, uh, very crucially, this is irreducible. Even if you actually do otherwise, you choose to relate to your neighbors, you choose to be invested in your family, you can choose to do otherwise. Modern potions, modern persons don't have to do this to the same, with the same degree of dependence and necessity that most of our ancestors did. And so the world, both of things and of persons, is experienced on a certain level as subject to, to me and my will in ways that would have felt very odd to our ancestors. And yet it doesn't even stop there. The the most agentic datum of our experience is presumably the, the human self, the experience of human agency of self, or of our own consciousness itself. Uh, but even here, the experience of, of being an agent is no longer quite as obviously person life as it person like as it as it was to our ancestors. A couple ways of seeing this: for for one, it is through the agency of others that we experience our own agency, which is which is why having siblings is so often formative, friends is so often formative for us. But but we live in a world in which it's increasingly possible, as, I, as I've just noted, to, to cut oneself off from others or to choose our community, to choose communities which don't challenge us in certain ways, for instance. And this inevitably makes it possible that certain dimensions of our agency are, are left unengaged and often underdeveloped. And then moreover, seeing our as we begin to see our very own selves in the mirror of our experience of the world, of this kind of mechanized world, we begin to see and experience our very own consciousness as a kind of epiphenomenon of impersonal hardwirings. So we begin to think of our, our our mind as something that can be reduced to the neuron firings of a brain, over which we have little control beyond kind of technological manipulations. So if things aren't going well, what do we do? We pop pills or something like that. You know, you change your lifestyle, you get the technique right, and then uh, you know, then your mind will experience certain things you know, given all that, modern persons frequently describe themselves, modern novels frequently describe this phenomenon of sort of being carried along in the forces of our very own selves as kind of passive writers in a torrent of conscious phenomena that we feel very little ability to change, manage, or control. Behind a lot of this, and I think most crucial for our analysis, modern labor is often not ordinarily and immediately connected to our lives. Most modern labor is kind of cog in the machine labor that however specialized is replaceable. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut and his player piano kind of anticipated a lot of this in our culture. Even if we are very good at what we do, we're mostly unclear precisely how we fit in the social organism and rather serve a function whose needs are not immediately meaningful to us, but rather serve to get us a paycheck. We all have a place in a cultural assembly line, if you will, whose total motions we barely understand and whose managers we can hardly identify it, it works, of course, but at the expense of a certain connection between our creativity, our gifts, and our capacity for immediate creation in this world. And this is the a great irony of modernity. On the one hand, the world is manifested as a world for me in my, in my kind of passive relation to it. That, that is to say, it has been sort of red carpeted for my convenience in all sorts of immediately practical ways but in my active relation to the world in my labor, it does not manifest as a world for me, but almost entirely as a world that's for another, a kind of an abstract social organism. And indeed, this is the kind of exchange we have. We give our sort of creative agency for a life of conveniences, for the payoff of a life of conveniences and entertainment, uh, you know, arguably a life of distractions. And so, so here's one way of framing the, the question of modern atheism in divine absence. If we were to ask what reality is like or query concerning what it means that a thing is real in the mirror of a more classical human existence, the discourse of the divine, the language of God is actually pretty natural, a pretty naturally felt inference. The grounding agent of a world experienced, pleasantly or not, <laughs> as having an agent-like aspect from the bottom all the way to the top. If we were to ask the same question of our own modern experience over the last 150 years or so, we'd, we'd get a different response. Read right in the mirror of our, our own labor, our own experience of other persons, <coughs> our experience of ourselves, our experience of, of the world that is almost entirely mediated to us in a way that suspends its intrinsic voice. It is not difficult to see why discourse concerning god kind of an agent behind it all if you, behind it all if you will why that discourse seems superfluous nothing in reality seems that agentic or personal and so it makes less sense to think of ourselves as grounded in a divine person it feels a lot more plausible and instinctual at least in some circumstances or at some moments to think of this sea of the impersonal as grounded in what amounts to a blind force. And so it's for these reasons in my judgment that that, that atheism becomes plausible in just this crucial period. And it's worth noting that it is also in this period, that is to say mid to late 19th century till now, that divine absence becomes a philosophical problem with atheist implications as opposed to sort of mere theodicy implications like where are you God when I'm suffering? Well, what does it mean that a thing is real? How does how does reality manifest? Well, reality is whatever is material and manipulable. Reality is that stuff that stuff that can, in principle, be interfered with. Attuning ourselves to the world as though it were simply this, the the material world then becomes the paradigm rather than an instance of reality. And against that register, God can only be seen indirect experience the way that we experience you know meta in a sort of physical you know reality like chairs or via a sort of divine and design inference you know we see all these material things well who made them next, so that sort of thing but but lacking the former that is to say if we don't have that kind of direct experience uh and if we're kind of concerned about sort of god of the gaps problems and in, in the latter God is increasingly rendered out of a job and his absence then becomes a crisis. God is not like reality as we tacitly think of it. And we infer wrongly that we've ceased needing him rather than that. We have actually become numb to certain dimensions of reality because we've bracketed them out by a sort of habitual mental and practical fiat. Of course, a lot of what I've said could be qualified in various ways. Nothing I've said could, I don't think, could ever really be a total accounting of things. But I think this makes precisely the point. In our minds, we can have all sorts of reasons to think that reality isn't quite what modern, the modern order attunes us to think that it is. But our default experience of the world is still and almost necessarily this, this way. As such, there's an almost inevitable tension between our beliefs about the world and our experience of the world. And I think this accounts for why we have very persuaded Christians who nevertheless still kind of feel the wooing of an atheist interpretation of the universe. Now, in a way, uh, I've simply interpreted the phenomenon in this video. In the previous video, you might say I I named the phenomenon and this one I've interpreted the phenomenon, but we haven't quite evaluated it yet. And as I'll mention in the next video, I don't think we should take the track of being big cynics of modernity. Uh, The implication of all this is is not, I don't think that we should go back before this big bad technology was hamming up our reality signals or whatever. Moreover, uh, I think our situation is actually an opportunity to see some dimensions of reality more clearly That is to say, an underappreciated aspect of modernity involves thinking through what God might be about pedagogically in this experience of things. And so so don't go away. (laughs) There's more to say about this. To be faithful requires something, I think, that is neither a reactionary or sentimental Luttitism, but also a clarified sense of the good that helps us navigate our own spiritual and civilizational challenges out of the love of God and the love of neighbor. So we don't need to be reactionary, but we can also be critical in some respects. But, but that's for next time. For now, I'm, I'm happy to have been joined by you on this occasion. And from one human face to another, I once again bid you farewell.